the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The only thing we have to fear is fear itself. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. We are fortunate to be alive at this moment in history. I can hear you. I can hear you. The rest of the world hears you. And the people who knock these buildings down will hear all of us soon. The truth is plain to see. If you want freedom, take pride in your country. If you want democracy, hold on to your sovereignty. It's time for the Pro-America Report with Ed Martin of The Answer San Diego. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Excuse me. Got a little bit of a bug going or something in my whole family. Everybody's sick. Uh, Welcome. Hey, um, in a few moments, uh, we've got a couple of great guests. We'll catch up with John Schlafly this week. We haven't talked to John in uh, a few days, I guess uh, almost a week. And we'll also talk with uh, my friend, Gregory Wrightstone. He's got a new book coming out, a follow-up to his best-selling book, Inconvenient Facts. And so we'll hear from him. All right. But first, excuse me, what you need to know, what you need to know. Today's wink. This one is about the um, it's going to sound a little a little bit too uh, rough, but the old men that are letting this country be driven into the ground, into the ground. And, you know, you think I'm talking about Joe Biden and it's part of it. Joe Biden is a factor. Uh, and Joe Biden, it's you know, it's just embarrassing at this point. It's it's elder abuse. It's embarrassing. Jill Biden and the Biden family, they should all be embarrassed. It's a terrible, terrible thing to let this guy go through this like he's going through it. I mean, he's just a shell of a person. And I don't actually blame him. One of the things I think they're doing is I feel bad when I see him. I'm serious. I actually have pity on the guy. You know, remember, my wife is a, is a doctor and she works exclusively with senior citizens, old people. She's a geriatrics physician. So we have a lot in our lives of old people. And um, this poor guy, I feel bad. When I see Joe Biden, I feel bad. I feel badly for him. I feel sad. I feel sorry. It's like when I see a kid, sometimes you see a kid, a young, young, young person and, and in a tough situation, like, I, I don't know, you know, either a dad is gone or there's a, something and, and you, you just kind of, your heart just goes, oh, and you feel bad. That's how I feel when I see Joe Biden, but it's embarrassing. And they continue to run all over the country. I mean, excuse me, the, the, our, our adversaries are running all over America. We haven't banned TikTok. And now they're telling people, uh, in fact, Chris Fenton, our friend over at, um, um, feed the dragon. I think his Twitter feed is feed the dragon. He's, uh, he has a piece that's posted or he linked to it about, um, about how, uh, TikTok is now dominating news, dominating news. And so it's, it's extraordinary. And we're watching this happen. That's happened. The Chinese are overrunning us. The Ukraine is a disaster, close to $200 billion, close to $200 billion we've spent, $200 billion we've spent with a B and it's a mess. 
Zelensky is not uh, welcome in all sorts of places. Even the Poles, who were pretty um, fearful of the Russians, have said, we're not going to uh, deal with that guy. Uh, yeah, by the way, Chris Fenton, let me make sure, at the Dragon Feeder, at the Dragon Feeder on Twitter. He's the one that I mentioned. He's got this post on uh, on the uh, uh, TikTok. And so uh, the hostages from Iran came home. Uh, we traded, gave them five. They gave us five, and we gave them $6 billion. Everybody's laughing all over the world. They just can't believe it. So it's a disaster everywhere. The country is being torn apart by the out-of-control media. The uh, the weaponized DOJ is a mess. And that's where I shift. Let me shift to that. Did you see Merrick Garland testify? The attorney general. Now, I clerked for a court of appeals judge. So Merrick Garland was for a decade or more a court of appeals judge, the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, federal court of appeals right below the U.S. Supreme Court. There are a series of circuit court judges, uh, circuits for appeals. I clerked for one of those judges. Merrick Garland was another one. Mine, mine, mine was based in Kansas City. I did a year as a clerk. And I, I so I know very well the kinds of um, work that is, the kinds of people that do that job. Merrick Garland, for more than a decade, I think maybe 15 years, was an appellate judge. These are people that are um, their life is very, um, very uh, straightforward. They don't have a lot of pressure. They, they are uh, handling complicated cases up on appeal. It's kind of a civilized life. It's kind of boring to me. Uh, but Merrick Garland now is an old retired judge. He's not aggressive. He's not attentive. He may be smart. I'm not saying he's not smart, but he answered questions up on Capitol Hill. He seemed clueless. He was clueless. He, he said, I don't know the answer a couple times to fundamental things. I think Thomas Massey, the congressman from Kentucky, he thinks that he, he committed perjury by lying about some things. He was just a mess. And you say to yourself, how can it be that the attorney general of the United States of America is a mess? And the answer is, just like the president of the United States, Joe Biden, they're not running things. Things are not being run by these people. Lisa Monaco, the number two at the Department of Justice, uh, this Jack Smith guy. I don't know who else, but it's not it's not Merrick Garland. He just looks like a faded old man. And I, I, I'm not trying to be mean. I'm saying that's what it looks like. And I don't know, maybe he's really in charge, but he basically, he had no answer. He, he had, he had non answers to questions that every attorney general answers. In other words, there's certain things you have to say. I can't tell you about the content of that because that's between me and the president or between me and, uh, the uh, official, uh, 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 you know, the advice. And I don't want to, but you can talk about the, the, uh, the decision making process. Everybody does because that's part of what's going. And so he just looked. He looked clueless. He looked uncomfortable. He looked out of sorts. And I, all that is to say, while we're distracted by these old men that are clearly out of their element, the country is literally, and I'm not using that term loosely, it's literally being invaded. It's literally, our borders are so open now, we're being invaded. We have on our borders, people coming across our borders, we have an invasion. It's not 1,000, it's 10,000. It's not 100, it's hundreds of thousands. It is just exponentially. And what's coming across the border are people, they now know it's our chance. And so as RFK Jr. said, and the videos have shown, you can take, look at the videos online. There are videos of it. It's not 
uh, families of five coming for the schools and the opportunity. It's working age men from Central Africa, from Asia, from wherever, pouring into our country, pouring into our country. It's insane that we're letting this happen. The, the Texas officials put up barbed wire in certain areas, not the whole place, but they put up barbed wire. And you know what? The federal government cut it down. Can you believe it? Here's what you need to know. These old men that are allowing this country to be driven into the ground have to be stopped. And the only way they can be stopped now is for this Congress, this House, to not fund anything until they seal the border. This should be, forget about a shutdown where everybody argues over who did what or what happened here. I, you know, who, who's, who's in charge of uh, the fact that the military didn't get paid or whatever. I, I, it doesn't matter. I'm saying this, seal the border. Just seal the border. That has to be what's going on. That has to be what happens. It just has to be. We have to have that. We have to make some kind of line in the sand because we are losing we are losing the the country. It's it's happening so quickly. It's happening so quickly that it's almost impossible to understand uh, how bad it is. You know, it's uh, I don't think you can really get it. It's not about a few migrants in our cities. It's not about a few uh, homeless in our parks. It's about down on the border. We're talking about tens of thousands of people coming across every week, and it's just going to be it's going to be a disaster. It is a disaster and it's got to stop. And the people, the, the one position, and maybe there's a couple more, maybe the uh, governors of the of, of Texas and uh, Arizona and others can band together and do something, probably not Arizona or New Mexico because they're Democrats. They don't want to embarrass the administration, but maybe, maybe um, you could have it at Texas. Maybe there's something that Florida could do DeSantis because they are, some are coming across in boats. There has been some coverage, but not much. It's mostly right on the Texas border. Whatever they can do, they must do. And what you need to know is it this is this can't wait now. I mean, we've talked to Benzman and then uh, Todd Benzman will be on, I think, tomorrow. His book Overrun is so good. But it, overrun, it's accelerated now. We are we're not just overrun, we're we're invaded. We are invaded. The nation is at risk. It has to be addressed. So that's uh, that's what you need to know today. And uh, I got to tell you, I hope more people will take it up seriously. I know the Republicans are fighting in the House over the uh, future of the um, of the of the uh, extending, you know, some sort of 30 day CR or whatever. But they have to get clear eyed. This is the one thing that needs to be done right now, actually. I mean, I, I feel like there's money spent for like giving money to Planned Parenthood that allows babies to be killed, you know, next week or tomorrow. That's bad enough. It is urgent. But right now, we don't have a nation if we don't get this under control. We don't have a nation, period. I wish some Republicans would step up and understand that and see the urgency of framing it that way. I think it's a winner politically, but I don't think it matters if it's a winner politically. It's it's a winner to hold our nation together. That's the winner. That's the win in this case. So uh, that's what you need to know. All right. Uh, we got to take a break. Let me say uh, thank you. Uh, excuse me. Let me say go to Pro America Report, um, ProAmericaReport.com. Sign up for the daily wink there. you get the daily email in your inbox and a whole lot more. We'll talk with John Schlafly and Gregory Wrightstone after the break. It's uh, Ed Martin here on the Pro America Report. We'll be back in a moment.
Welcome back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. You know, um, I uh, last weekend we were in uh, uh, St. Louis, as I've told you often, and we had our uh, Eagle Council. And I, <laughs> one of our guests that was speaking there, I said, you know, this has been a good meeting, but there was one meeting years ago where uh, one of our speakers, Gregory Wrightstone, uh, executive director over at the CO2 Coalition, he had a session and they sent in a, a plant, an Antifa plant to jump up and start trouble. And it was so I said, you know, that was a good session. There was someone who came to the meeting this weekend just to complain about something. I said, but that the complaining and asking hard questions is not as good as Antifa yelling and chanting during your thing, which is what Gregory Wrightstone had happened to him. And we have him as our guest today. It's been a while since we've caught up. Uh, he, of course, is a, a well-known uh, writer now. He's got his book, Inconvenient Facts, a bestseller, and uh, he is the executive director, as I mentioned, at CO2Coalition.org. Welcome, Gregory. How are you? Oh, good. Yeah, that was a lot of fun there when the Antifa guy got up in my face and pointed his finger <laughs> in my know. chest. I walked right into him. <laughs> yeah. I didn't back off. I, walk, I walked forward. I know. It's true. It made it made us a little nervous here. We're going to have a Antifa brawl, and you know we're only a couple miles from Ferguson. Who knows what happens? But uh, anyway, it was great. You're right, and and uh, more importantly, they they yelled and screamed and chanted and didn't have much of an argument, as you know. That's the if you don't have an argument, you bang on the table. Um, Gregory, uh, I, I I didn't get a chance to preview this to you, but Vivek Ramaswamy was asked about all the global change, global warming, climate change, and he called it a hoax. But he did it in a particular way. He said he didn't talk even he didn't even take the bait on on trying to to, to refute the pseudoscientists. He just said the hoax is how much money you expect America to pay and how you set up this elaborate system where Americans are supposed to pay uh, to fix everything and no one else does. I thought that was an, a, a, a clever way to uh, point to a major hole in the argument. It is there. Uh, they're looking, the developing world is moving full speed ahead, particularly India and particularly China, in developing fossil fuel-fired e- electricity generation capacity. Uh, the rest of the developing world would love to do that, uh, but many of them are standing with their hands out, looking for the Western nations, and American and Jenner in particular, to p- pay climate reparations. Uh, and we just saw that last week. There was a lawsuit uh, in an international court in The Hague, where mm-hmm. a number, several dozen island nations, including Tuvalu and the Maldives, uh, were suing the developed nations, including the United States, for uh, climate reparations because their islands were going to be underwater soon. Uh, over the next couple of decades, they're going to be underwater. Well, we just, uh, I just reported that in our, our weekly newsletter yesterday that we published. Uh, those islands, like the Maldives, are like, the UN lists the Maldives as the most at-risk islands and nation in the world because the highest point's only 14 feet above sea level. And it makes sense if we've got rising sea level that they're going to be underwater at some point. Oh, contraire, not true, not true at all. <laughs> if you look back 15,000 years ago, the Maldives were also barely above sea level. In that time frame, the last 15,000 years, sea levels have risen 400 feet, 400 feet of sea level rise over the last 15,000 years. But here they are still just above sea level. And the reason is this geologic process known as accretion. As sea level rises, uh, the islands actually grow. The storms bring in uh, gravels and sand from the shore face and wash it up onto the surface of the island. 
so the island naturally grows. So, so what they're saying is, well, uh, and bear in mind, sea level's rising at seven inches per year, which is about two inches by 2050. So what they're saying is the last 400 feet of sea level rise didn't put these islands underwater, but that next two inches will. <laughs> uh, it doesn't work that way. The, these same processes are in action today, just like they have been for many thousands of years. We're talking with Gregory Wrightstone, again, executive director over at the CO2 Coalition, and um, he does a great job there, CO2Coalition.org. But also, he's a communicator of the First Order. He's a, he's a speaker, has written a book, uh, Inconvenient Facts, has another book coming out uh, in the next month or so, uh, which we'll hear a lot more about. Um, and But he's, he's good at this in terms of communicating. Um, Greta Thunberg. I like I'm 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 not obsessed with her, but I I found it so uh, sad. It's like Joe Biden is a victim of elder abuse in that White House, in my opinion. I think his wife is doing a disservice to the country and to him. And I think that Greta Thunberg's parents were, uh, you know, mistreating her in terms of that. She's now 20 years old, so she's not a kid anymore. She doesn't get to be a kid. It does feel to me like she she's um, gotten less relevant in America. But that may be because I want to believe that. Is it? Is she um, in Europe? I know they lionize her, and she's you know she's writing books, and I'm not sure she's not writing them, but she's got books that are written with her as the author. But is is her influence has it has it faded? And maybe the worst way to say it is, does it work on young people? That may be the way. That may be why they really use her. Yeah, I'm not. It sure feels. I'm I'm with you. I don't I don't see her out there as much either. I don't have any. Uh, data to back that up but yeah you just don't hear so much from her uh, we see from a lot from these other climate activists that are out there marching thousands strong in new york against the u.n climate uh they're out there protesting gluing themselves to statues uh, they just threw paint on the brandenburg gate in, in germany yeah last week uh making all kinds of nuisance they're i think they're causing problems from themselves and they uh, they're causing people to hate with them for doing what they're doing, holding people up from work, uh, stopping hosp- ambulances to getting from hot to the hospital by blocking roads, things like that. Uh, so uh, they're not. But boy, this this whole climate movement's just it feels like it's accelerating all the time. But the fact of the matter is, when I talk to normal people, they're thirsty for the information we provide, just like the sea level rise we just talked about that nobody knows about. Uh, we we provide the data and the facts on fires, global fires, on uh, deserts that are shrinking. Uh, forests are growing. They're not. We're not seeing deforestation. We're seeing reforestation. Uh, we're seeing a greening of the earth. Uh, crops are breaking records year after year. You show people this, and they go, "Wow, I didn't know that. I thought everything was getting horrible. Everything you're showing me." Is good, and, that, and that's really the crux of my new book. The title is "A Very Convenient Warming: How Modest Warming and More CO2 Are Benefiting Humanity." Mm-hmm. And, and that's what we find by almost every metric we look at. We find that our ecosystems are thriving and prospering, and humanity is benefiting from the combination of warming and more CO2. And we should celebrate that uh, because, again, we're feeding our Agricultural production is greatly outpacing population growth. Uh, so we're feeding a growing population with more and more and more food. And it's because of warming temperatures and more CO2. 
Uh, Gregory Wrightstone's our guest. Gregory, I just got about two minutes, a little bit under two minutes left. So, uh, and, and I'm on a hard break. Um, but I want to ask you, John and Andy Schlafly wrote, write a weekly column. And one of the columns recently was about the United Auto Workers. And I thought of you because it basically said the United Auto Workers, um, it's just a mess. The whole car industry is a mess. And one of the reasons it's a mess is because the government, the federal government is picking winners and losers, spending pouring money into electric vehicles. Years ago, you told me the electric vehicle uh, market would, you thought wouldn't ultimately would not work no matter how much you money you pour into it um and that's john and andy schlafly in their column agreed is that is that where it's still headed i mean i hate to say it but did we prop up the market long enough that it's it's sort of gonna still exist or is it headed towards collapse well i, I think they're going to they're almost going to have to increase subsidies for these i mean you buy buy an ev vehicle right now you get 7500 bucks uh but that's probably not enough we're seeing a decline just over the last year in ev sales not an increase and uh a good friend of the CO2 coalition is a is an auto dealer here in the DC area, and he reports to us that uh, nationwide dealers are seeing over more than 90 days of inventory of EVs on their on their lots. And he tells me that for for a car dealer, they like to keep less than 30 days of inventory oh. of any any type of vehicle. Now they and they're just not moving. They got mm-hmm. more than 90 days of inventory sitting yeah. there going unsold. Uh, that tells me a lot. Yeah, people well, uh, yeah, and, and, and big reasons not to. <laughs> and I think uh-huh. more and more, more, more and more people are saying what my wife has said for years. And she said, "Where do people think they get the electricity that they plug into? Do they think there's an electric tree or, or a windmill down the block?" She's like, "It's again, it's gas and oil and and everything else." And so you you fool yourself, but you fool yourself to the tune of hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars in subsidies. Unfortunately, Gregory Wrightstone, I've got to go. I'm sorry, I'm up against a hard break. Gregory Wrightstone is the executive a director, and I'll put up on social media co2coalition.org. There's a lot of there, there, a bunch of resources. You can check it out. We've got to take a break. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro America Report. Back in a moment. Welcome back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro America Report. Time to catch up with John Schlafly, our old friend John Schlafly. He writes the weekly Phyllis Schlafly Report with his brother Andy, and uh, the column is out oh, in the last 24 hours, usually posts over at our sister site, townhall.com, on Tuesday evening. Also available archived with the rest of John's columns at phyllisschlafly.com. Uh, this week's column, Social Justice, quote unquote, Social Justice Demands a Four-Day Workweek. And here we go, John. Um, there's been I thought there was some sympathetic coverage that the unions were striking because, you know, you had this image that they were working too hard and the and the rich uh, CEOs were making more money. But it turns out the demands are, are uh, I don't know, pretty, pretty wild. So walk us through what is happening in Michigan these days. Well, hello, Ed. Yes, we we decided to uh write about what's going on with the auto strike and the auto industry. And, uh, of course, the United Auto Workers is just a shadow, a fraction of what it used to be decades ago. And, uh, you know, they only represent a, a much smaller number of workers and only at the three companies, which are and only two of which are America now. The third one, Stellantis, is far known. But... Um, so they they elected by the uh, earlier this year they elected a radical new president he won by just like a fraction of 1% but he's now taking the union on the warpath uh, uh for every progressive idea and uh 
he hasn't really figured out how to thread the needle between the concern, uh, the interests of his members who make gasoline-powered cars and uh, mandates to switch to electric cars. And, you know, of course, Biden hasn't either. And there's no way to solve that problem. Electric cars would destroy the American auto industry and it would destroy the jobs of his members. And, uh, uh, but John, but John, at the, at the heart, at the, on union. Yeah. And, and, and all the, and every single one of the about a dozen foreign owned auto plants, which employ hundred, a hundred thousand American workers in the United States, but they're all non-union and United Auto Works has tried to organize them, but you know, the workers don't want them. So we have this antique ultra left, uh, pro communist union, which is still a residue from the days of Walter Ruther. Some of your older listeners might remember Walter Ruther. He was a pro communist fellow traveler, uh, left wing union leader back in the 1950s and 60s. And here is this, uh, this narrowly elected, the, the, the other, candidate uh, uh, is accusing him of voter fraud, but nevertheless, he's running the union now, and he's taking the union out on strike against the three companies that are based in Detroit, which are General Motors, Ford, and Stellantis, formerly Chrysler. Uh, we're talking with... <clears throat> and and one of his demands is, you know, we only want to, they only want to work four days a week, but get the same five days of pay. So that was the reason for our headline. That's one of his demands. Well, uh, it's a forty percent pay increase and a lot of other things. Uh, we're talking with John Schlafly and uh, his column this week. But John, the the, the the one that jumps out at you is that they want a four day work week with five day uh, pay. I mean, you know, at this point, is this is this like serious? I mean, are they serious? This is, uh, as you say, it would it would destroy the industry, the American automobile industry. Uh, I I feel like the auto workers don't mind working hard, or maybe I'm being too um, maybe I'm being too generous, and and many Americans that I think would be willing to work hard don't want to work hard. But I, I feel like auto workers don't mind working their shifts. But are they real? I guess what they're trying to do is say work uh, 40 hours in four days instead of 40 hours in five days. And that's the point. I, I It just seems to me to be so silly at this point, as you point, as you describe it, it's social justice, some sort of, you know, should be anachronistic term, but it's still thrown around. Uh, is that is that are they serious? And then what does that mean? Well, I think they are serious. And the. Uh, of course, the uh, the union points out that the auto companies did make a lot of money last year, but uh, like any big companies, they're looking forward into the future and not last year. And uh, the, the fact is that uh, the you know the companies that call uh, sometimes that used to be called the big three, although they're not a lot smaller than they used to be, but GM, Ford, and Stellantis. Um, they haven't figured out how to make uh, electric cars that are affordable and that they can make money off of them uh, with a higher with higher labor costs and uh, meet the mandates. And there really is no plan to do that. And uh, they they're looking ahead and they realize that they're not going to be able to make money on making electric cars. 
And so they don't want to sign a contract that would effectively uh, risk the, those three companies going out of business again, like they did in 2008. No, and let's remember, uh, General Motors was once the biggest, most powerful company in America, went bankrupt in 2008. And the main reason they did that was because they agreed to uh, union contracts which committed them to pay for a cradle-to-grave uh, health care with no co-pays for all their former workers and retired workers in addition to their currently uh, people who were currently working. And the company, there's no way the company could possibly have um, financed those payments. And so the company went bankrupt. Now, uh, you know, it, well, that wasn't that long ago. I mean, Americans should remember that because uh, Obama had to bail them out and he bailed the union out then. So here we are again, and the auto companies can foresee that if they are forced to uh, basically eliminate gasoline-powered cars and only make electric cars, they're not going to be able to make money and they're not going to be able to afford to pay uh, a 40% wage increases to the union members and to pay them five days a week for working four. That's just not going to work. John, is your, is your instinct on this? And I'm, I'm not saying that you've done all the analysis to look at all these details, but is your instinct that the electric uh, vehicle, um, the, the subsidies that have been required to make that even remotely and econ- economically possible situation, <coughs> pardon me, are, are just so flawed and that the way forward is just get over it and, and go back to uh, gas and, and, uh, and diesel uh, vehicles. Or are we, are we past that point where we've artificially stimulated the electric uh, vehicle industry and it will have a future? What's your sense? No, I don't. I, I think it will collapse. Uh, it'll I think be a so. niche. I think it'll so be too. a niche. Yeah. And, but the idea that cars and trucks, I mean, don't forget these climate crazies, they're not just talking about passenger cars, but also trucks have to, uh, will have to, uh, uh, convert diesel power to electric power. I mean, and that really is insane, but nevertheless, that's being rolled out in California right now. And, uh, uh there aren't charging stations available to charge up trucks what trucking fleets are doing is to set up diesel-powered electric generators and then wheeling up their electric trucks to to charge by diesel-powered electric <laughs> generators. Now, think how ridiculous that is. But, you know, that's what they're forced to do. Uh, we're talking with John Schlafly. You know, it's um, it's it's funny to laugh out loud, but it is it is crazy. And I, you know, I'm also picturing these truck drivers. There's a sort of a cycle and a and a sense of those that, those jobs. And if you like that job, over the tr- over the road drivers, they they enjoy it and they have a. Imagine these guys are going to have to wait hours and hours and hours to charge their vehicles. They're gonna they're not gonna it's not gonna be gas up in a, in in thirty you know fifteen minutes. Get a cup of coffee and on you keep going. As you're gonna have to sit there for six hours. I it it, it boggles the 
the mind to think that this is a uh, a, a positive uh, policy. All right, John, we're out of time, unfortunately. John Schlafly, everybody. His column, of course, is over at phyllisschlafly.com. The Phyllis Schlafly Report. This week's column, Social Justice Demands a Four-Day Workweek. And John and Andy Schlafly go through the insanity of what's happening with the uh, automo- automotive strike uh, and where it's headed. We'll talk again soon, John. Thank you, as always. Uh, John Schlafly, everybody. We'll take a break, and we'll be right back. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Uh, Back in a moment. This is the Phyllis Schlafly Report, a daily broadcast from Phyllis Schlafly Eagles. And we're upholding the legacy of Phyllis Schlafly, a constitutional attorney and articulate voice for traditional values for more than 70 years. And now from the archives of Phyllis Schlafly Eagles, here is Phyllis Schlafly. Tomorrow is the anniversary of some of the most famous words in American history. It was on September 22, 1776, that a 21-year-old man named Nathan Hale was hanged by the British and uttered the great words, I only regret that I have but one life to lose for my country. Nathan Hale graduated from Yale with first-class honors at age 18. He was a teacher in a local grammar school who volunteered to serve in George Washington's army. In 1776, Washington called for a brave volunteer to take on the mission of going as a spy behind enemy lines to find out the location of the anticipated attack by the British. This was such a dangerous mission that Nathan Hale was the only one who volunteered. He volunteered to penetrate the British line at Long Island and left on his mission on September 8, 1776. Hale was captured by the British on his return to the American forces. The very next morning, without any trial, Nathan Hale was hanged from an apple tree in an orchard near what are now the streets of East Broadway and Market in New York City. No one knows where his body was buried. A life-size statue of Nathan Hale stands at Yale University, and at least a half a dozen copies of that statue are in other prominent places, particularly and most appropriately at the CIA headquarters, and also in front of the Chicago Tribune building in Chicago. Nathan Hale's great-nephew, the well-known author Edward Everett Hale, later wrote, We are God's children, you and I, and we have our duties. Thank God I come from men who are not afraid in battle. Every schoolchild should know the name and famous words of Nathan Hale, because he is the kind of man who won our independence for us. This has been the Phyllis Schlafly Report from Phyllis Schlafly Eagles. Whether it's the vision of our founding fathers, the courage of our veterans, the moral compass of Christopher Columbus, or the fortitude of presidents like Lincoln and Reagan, the truth of history should not be undercut by liberal ideology. At Phyllis Schlafly Eagles, we honor history even as we look to the future. Join us at phyllisschlafly.com. That's phyllisschlafly.com. Welcome. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Uh, hey, let me give you a little update, a little uh, sartorial splendor update. I, I have to say, one of the things that always made me smile was in the midst of being a famous uh, political consultant and a kind of uh, uh, a political operative, whatever he was, Roger Stone made time to write for years a column 
on how to dress well and how to uh, how to match your stuff and hats and all this kind of stuff. And so much so at various times in magazines, I think in New York City, he did a top 10 uh, best dressed kind of thing. Really funny. And he himself has a great style dressing. Uh, but I was raised by um, in my family and especially for some reason, my grandfather and grandmother on my mother's side, they they just taught us to um, dress certain ways. And the the way to dress was um, was somewhat more formal. So my grandfather, like for church, I don't think I, I don't. This probably wasn't true, but it felt to me like uh, as a boy, he died when I was fifteen. I don't think I ever saw him go to church without a, a jacket, a suit and tie on, often a three piece suit. He was a three piece suit kind of guy. And my grandmother was a very stylish woman. She had um, run uh, over her life. She had been an, in, sort of an interior designer. A sort of consultant. She was very classy, very uh, somewhat prim and proper. And so I grew up and I knew, you know, you had to wear a, a shirt and tie when you went to a job interview. You had to wear, uh, you know, a clean uh, a shirt and a pressed shirt and clean pants and shoes, not sneakers and things like that. When you were doing anything, even when it was less formal, you dressed up. And I remember years later, um, hearing uh, John Ashcroft, the former attorney general of the United States and a former Missouri senator and a governor and a uh, long time presence in Missouri. And he had that line that's not original to him, I don't think. But he said, dress for the job you want, not the one you've got. It used to be if you wanted to be in management, you had to have a suit on. You might be the guy starting out and you might wear a blazer and khakis. But when you get to the top level, you wear a suit. I'm not sure how to uh, describe this for women, but, you know, you get my point. And I remember another experience when I ran for Congress in 2010, I went to see Phyllis Schlafly and I, I, she and some of her eagles gave me a critique. And one of the critiques was that when I came in the room, I was wearing khakis and a golf shirt. And one of the people, one of the women with Phyllis, who was saying, you know, giving me, I, I, I had I'd gone into the room with three or four people and it was, the idea was to, um, to talk about how to be a good candidate, give them a pitch speech, talk about some issues, take some questions. One of the uh, one of the women honed in and said, you know, look, you, you look comfortable and you look good. But she said, you want to dress like a congressman. I was running for Congress. A congressman's got a shirt and tie off. And if it's a comfortable setting, you can take your jacket off and roll your sleeves up or even take your tie off, although she recommended against it. And which brings us all the way to today. And I'm now getting to be a, a, a old timer and a fogey, uh, a fogey in my own right. And with my own kids, I'm always like, hey, you know, dress nicer, dress nicer. We're going to church. You know, God deserves your best, that kind of thing. And, I, you know, so I'm turning into my dad and my granddad. However, and I never like dress down days. I don't like all this dress down stuff. I don't like uh, jeans. I don't I don't I don't like jeans on to work. I don't like any of that stuff. I don't like shorts to work. People wear anything. So I'm a little I'm a little bit old school, I suppose. But we're down to the point here where the, the U.S. Senate, and you've seen this, has changed the rules so you don't have a dress code. The senators, you can wear whatever you want. And it's all because this guy Fetterman from Pennsylvania, who wears hoodie sweatshirts and shorts, and he's huge. He's, I don't know, 6'6", six, 6'7", six, six, I don't know. He's a he, big, heavy guy, and he's had strokes, and he looks really, he always looked a little bit sort of uh, like a, a character, as we say, and uh, didn't look like the sharpest uh, knife in the drawer, but who knows? I mean, lots of people that look one way are are smart, and he won in Pennsylvania. But here's the thing. It's ridiculous that the United States Senate is having people dress so foolishly. And I did track somebody saying, I think it was Mike Cernovich online. And Cernovich said, 
it's an insult on purpose. It's meant to be humiliating, humiliating for the institution. It's not uh, Caligula's horse, you know, the famous thing where Caligula sent a horse in to serve in the Senate, and that was evidence of his insanity. No, this is evidence of disrespect and demeaning of an institution. It's done on purpose. It's not just Fetterman. It's his colleagues. It's it's Schumer. It's Schumer giving, you know, the, the nation and the great institution that is the Senate the denigration that he thinks it deserves. There's no other way to look at it. Any other way to look at it is a lie. Oh, it's just comfort. No, it's nonsense. You know, they have a dress code for uh, people that attend the Senate. In other words, if you sit in the gallery, you have to, you can't be dressed like a fool. But if you sit in the Senate as a senator, you can dress like a fool. It's, it's an insult. It's on purpose. They, they're working. They are doing this to insult. And you say, why? And one reason is they just hate things that are true and honorable. It's really evil. But the other is by denigrating institutions, they lose credibility. They lose power. And the people that can control you are not going to have to be stood up to. Forget about by Fetterman, by Rand Paul, or by Ted Cruz standing up for you. They're, 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 they're purposely fine. Remember when the Supreme Court was controlled by liberals? Then it was the wisest body ever, and you should all abide by it. And when it came out with a pronouncement, oh, we just decided to redefine uh, the definition of marriage. You're supposed to say, wow, that's really, these are wise people. When it got controlled by conservatives, you now have to not believe that it's worth listening to. Denigrating the institution is bad in general, but it's purposeful in that it makes it less credible, less capable of standing up for us. And the last thing that they want is a Senate that could be, especially after 2024, in control of Republicans that people listen to. They'd rather make it a laughing stock and a dumping ground for quality people, a dumping ground from which quality people are not found, in which. It's a terrible tradition, a terrible uh, precedent, and it's insulting, and it's pathetic, and it's terrible. And, you know, here we are. All right, um, we've got to run. That, uh, please visit ProAmericaReport.com. Sign up for the daily email. Thank you to Ryan Hyde, our producer, Mason Mohan, our uh, associate producer, and we will be back. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro America Report. Talk to you soon. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.